This evening, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalm, or Psalms, Psalm 120. It's a short one. I said that I, <laughs> I said I was going to skip a sections from the Psalm of Ascent, even though I'm in that section of the Psalter that is considered the fifth book. Uh, this Psalm is, in many ways, uh, too good to pass up, especially in light of the theme of Christ our King, we His citizens of His kingdom, and how we are to think of our place in the kingdom and in this world and the battle that wages around us. Despite the ferocity of the battle, we must always remember that we are the ones for peace, that we are the ones who, in having the gospel, not only in our mouths but in our hearts, are endeavoring to make peace with the nations through the proclamation of Christ. And so I want you to remember that as I read these short seven verses and then preach upon the same. In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? Or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray. The blessing preaching of this holy word. Lord, whatever we are, whatever our enemies may do and say to us and of us, may we remember that our king is the prince of peace. Not a king, a weak king, a nice king, a tolerant king, but a king through his precious blood offers a way even to enemies to bow their knees, to confess with their mouths and to believe in their hearts that he is the true king of heaven and earth, and thus be granted a declaration of peace. And so may we be people armed with the word of God for that final objective that is the beating of the spear into the plowshed. Our heart, O Lord, then, is the peace of your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Psalm 120 reads like a lament. It is the pouring out of a heart that feels the pain of separation from God's house. This is the stage that is set even in verse 5. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. The writer of the psalm is in a state of distress, of anguish, of conflict with the world, and he feels distance. He feels the presence of his enemies. He feels the weight of war. But that is not his primary objective. In fact, even David, who is the great warrior king of Israel, only fought for the glory of God, for he was jealous for the glory of God. David learned to fight as a shepherd of the sheep. You know this. And with his sling and with his stones, he killed lions, bears, 
He killed any that might threaten the livelihood of his father's flock. David had that same jealousy for the glory of God when he stood up to David, and no man would stand up to David, even the tall, mighty king Saul, who was chosen because he was a head taller than anyone else in Israel, and there was Goliath, a head taller than anyone else in the world, the last of the great giants who dwelt in the land. Israel was and had displayed fear of them prior to that. Remember the spies? They sought out the land, and when they went into the land, they saw big fruit, They saw a a land that was ripe with produce, but not ripe for the picking. They saw giants in that land. And when we read giants, I want you to hear giants. The offspring that we read of, even in the early part of the book of Genesis. There are always enemies of God. And they will always appear mighty and strong to us. But David, when he went to Goliath, he looked at him and he saw him differently than the rest of Israel. And he came to Goliath and he sought to silence the cursings of that vile man who spoke ill of God and God's people. And so David came to Goliath and he said, I come not with you with a sword and a spear, but armed, armed as one who comes on behalf of the Lord God. And so David took his sling, he threw that stone, he lodged it deep into the head of that giant, stunning him, knocking him to the ground, and then picking up Goliath's sword, that's right, boys, and cutting off his head. And I had this beautiful print of an artist named Gustave Doré, who many years ago was commissioned to write plates in these old King James Bible, in one of the old King James Bibles, and he would have these plates throughout certain stories in the Old and New Testament. Some of them are inappropriate because they do contain images of Christ. But my favorite is the picture of young boy David holding up the severed head of Goliath. The tendons of his neck are hanging down. You go, yeah! Well, why did David do that? Well, he was driven by jealousy for the glory of God. And David not only was a warrior, but he was also a musician. In fact, much of the Psalter is written by David. David was not only a man who loved beauty and created beautiful things, a man of great peace, but also a man of war. Christians are to think of themselves in similar roles, but always with a primary objective, that both in worship of the risen king and war against the world that does not worship him, our primary objective isn't scorched earth, but it is to bring men and women and children into covenant fellowship with God. As one apologist says, the mission of apologetics is to shoot holes in the wings of the arguments of the unbeliever. But when they begin to crash their plane... We don't want to argue in such a way that they don't want to land where we want them to land. Does that make sense? We want them to land upon Christ. And how we conduct ourselves as believers has a, large, has a lot to do with that. Now tonight, I want us to remember that we are for peace, despite the longing in our hearts for the conflict to be over. Three points that I want to make this evening after a relatively lengthy introduction. The first... The state of waiting. Second, the longing of the righteous. And thirdly, the means of achieving it. Let's look at this state 
of waiting. You and I are waiting on something. This is what it means to be members of the church militant. Much has been realized in the nature of the kingdom. Christ has come. He has been victorious over the grave. We are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And one day we will be fully raised. Our flesh no longer feeling the effects of sin and death. But we are not there yet. It is a now and not yet reality. And in the context of this psalm, it is even deeper into the not yet than we are. This psalm is written prior to the coming of the Messiah, but built upon the hope of the Messiah. This psalm is written hoping that God would deliver the writer from distress, from his bitter enemies. From those who, like in Psalm 115, say, in a taunt, where is your God? That is the taunt, that is the condition That is the context in which this psalm is also written. Now, it is the first of the psalms of the ascent, just after Psalm 119, which is a psalm that delights in the law of God. We are to delight in the law of God, and we are to love being called to God's house because we love the one who dwells there. But what if we were kept from it? And what if when we are not in God's house, we are dumped square into the conflict of the fight in this world? I imagine that may happen to many of us. We'll walk through those doors tonight. We wake up tomorrow morning and we go out into a world and we are surrounded by those who do not love Christ and would have us not love him as well. Who might taunt us, who might argue with us. That is the condition, that is the context from which this psalm is written. It is a distress. Woe is me. Woe is me because I dwell in a land that does not acknowledge God's presence and separates me from his holy temple. Now, the way in which we feel this today is not so much a separation from the presence of God because Christ says, wherever there are two or more in terms of corporate worship, there I am with them. The church is more global, universal, spread out than it has ever been. This is, the, this is the result of Christ's resurrected glory and the giving of the Holy Spirit. But emotionally, psychologically, physically, there are times where we feel separated from the smiling countenance of God and a presence of peace with Him. Children, it's like a moment in which you can climb into your father's lap, which still happens in my home, which is great. And that child climbs into his or her parents' lap. Why? Because it's safe. That's the safe place. Unlike that first day of school, right? And you go out and you don't know anybody, or you have to go to the doctor to get a shot. I want you to think of him those things, these competing contexts, one of comfort and confidence and strength and peace, One of fear. The cry of the psalmist in the midst of all of this is, we are for peace. Now, what the world says of the church is what? You just can't be happy. Just let me do what I want to do. Stop telling me what to do. Stop interfering in my life. Teenagers, you especially, say of your parents, listen, just just leave me alone. And your parents are going... I have to do what I have to do, what God calls me to do. And ultimately, what I want for you is peace. The peace that comes in living righteously. The peace that comes in being at peace with God. 
And so this is the lie that the world tells the church that you ought not believe. Don't drink this Kool-Aid. That it is the church that is the primary institution of militancy against the world. Because if it weren't for the church, then things would just be okay. Now, there are religious organizations that are for war. Islam is one of those. Islam is a religion that expands by the sword. Christianity is a religion that expands by the proclamation of peace with God and man by the sword of the Spirit. We conquer through the proclamation of God's word. And at the center of all of that proclamation in this state of waiting is... Christ says to you, come and receive his offer of peace. The world wants to say of us, that's not what we're about. And sometimes we believe them. And that leads to two kinds of reactions. Number one, we become defensive and overly militaristic in our dogma and in our objective. Or we go, okay, I'm going to back off. And we become impotent. We become pathetic. We become silent. But what the world needs is not a church that bows to its whims and caves to its threats, but a church that proclaims boldly the whole counsel of God's word that is summarized in, Come all you who are heavy laden. Come unto me and you will find rest. What the wicked want is silence from the church. What the wicked want is for the church to stop singing. And the way that they're going to do that is either by threatening us and causing us to act out of fear or providing bait that we ought not take. The world hates Christ and all that Christ stands for. And the ministry of the church is to proclaim boldly and loudly, no matter the context, peace. Second point, the longing of the righteous. In verse 2, there is a plea. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. See, I said it already. Don't take the bait. Don't be afraid. When you feel the distress and the loneliness at times, of being the only voice of sanity, it seems, in a world that has lost its mind. What you are to do is to bring to the Lord your concerns. Prior to ever posting online, you are to bring to God your burdens. Don't let your initial reaction be posted for all the world to see. Plead your case before the Lord first. God's not afraid of mean posts that you bring to him. We see a lot of this in the Psalter, don't we? There are expressions and sentiments that the psalmists write that seem to us at times a bit bold. There is doubt. There is grief. There is despair. Bring those things to the Lord. Deliver me. Lord, deliver me from the lying lips and the deceitful tongues of those among whom I live. Do you see this lying and this deceit? You see it everywhere. 
the propaganda of the world. And our first response ought to be in our times of distress, bringing it unto the Lord and seeking solutions in his word, arming yourself with the sword of the spirit to put on the full armor of God, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to arm yourself with the shield and the buckler. This comes in those quiet moments of arming yourself in your prayer closet, as it is often called. We are to seek the Lord's help. Now, how is this uh, plea, prayer request, fully, most gloriously answered? Well, here, the psalmist's prayer is answered in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This plea is that God would show his glory, that the enemy of God or the enemy of God and God's people, would be put to nothing, that they would be silenced, that they'd be put to shame. And that the primary means by which the Father answers this prayer is through the Son's primary death, burial, and resurrection. So when Martin Luther is writing to the church, he's writing of this need to be theologians of the cross. And in this expression of theologian of the cross, what he says is this, that the Christian is to view the world through Christ and his cross, such that the weakness of God, right? Christ is naked, hanging upon a cross, dying. That is the moment at which death died. When Christ's life was exhausted, exhausted, when he gave it up, that is the moment in which death died, 1 Corinthians 15, which is a glorious, glorious exposition of Christ's suffering and death. And we look at that moment and we say, that is the linchpin. That is the moment upon which all history hinges. That is our battle cry. And it begins with death. It does not end in death. It ends in what? Ascension. Christ goes from utter humiliation and weakness to glory and exaltation and authority. So that we can bring to Christ our pleas. Lord, deliver us. And he knows how to do it. And he is able to do it. Because he was delivered. Out of the hands of his enemies. Deliver me. And so our longing. Is something that Christ answers. And it is deliverance from the lies of the wicked. And so again. The theme of this psalm is, here we are as a church. We're trying to get along. We're trying to labor for righteousness, to labor to serve the poor, to labor for the ministry of the hearts of men, women, and children. And there is this world out there, and all they want to do is take us into captivity. And they lie about us. This happened this week about my own denomination. They lied about us on social media. And I can explain more about that later. And what they want to do is diminish the glory of Christ by diminishing the beauty of her church. I'm not saying let's not tell the truth about the church. We need to tell the truth about the church. And the truth is, though we are a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are still a company, as Machen would say, of weak and sinful folk. We are both 
We are both weak and strong. We are both poor and rich. And the world only wants to tell one story, one side of that, in order to do what? To silence for their own benefit the proclamation of the whole counsel of the word of God. So how are we to think? How are we to fight? We fight fire with the word. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't taunt as they taunt. I'm not opposed, and I don't think the gospel is opposed, and the word of God is opposed to humor or bold, courageous speech and action. But we do not tell lies. We do not bear false witness against our neighbors. We do not engage in ad hominem arguments when the character of the person is not the thing being argued. We pray for, we proclaim, we seek the glory of Christ in every sphere of human government so that Christ's glory may be shown. What happens when an individual's soul is conquered by the gospel? What happens when a family is conquered by the gospel? What happens when a church is conquered by the gospel? What happens when a nation is conquered by the glory of Christ? All of these things, what is the result? Life and the protection of it. The protection of the weak. The protection of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the outcast. And this is what we ought to pray for. This is what we ought to preach for. This is what we ought to labor for in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches, in our nation. Every nation of men, all nations, all groups of men, every government of men ought to seek the peace that only comes through the gospel. There can be no peace through lies. There can be no peace through deception. There can be no peace through rebellion. Only through submission to the word of God. That is our goal, nothing less. We leave to God the results, right? We cannot guarantee the results, but what we can guarantee is that we will be faithful even in times of distress. And what the psalmist is doing is he is singing out in the midst of his enemies, and he's saying, you hate peace. Woodstock was not about peace. It was about what? Well, really, it was about sexual license. And we saw where that got us, right? The 60s gave birth to this. And I, I got to tell you, I'm not real impressed with the fruit of that sowing. And this is not one generation accusing another generation. I cannot imagine what will come from our generation of deviance and rebellion. But don't let the world tell you, just let me be as they jettison the word of God for utter rebellion, you need to get in there and say, no, 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 no. You have no idea what you're talking about. What you will continue, if you continue down this path, all you will get, Psalm 115 is what? Death. The fruit of sowing in idolatry. We are for peace, which is the restoration of worship, the building of the church, the sowing of life among all, all governments of men and the crying out, Lord, how long? So what is the means by which we achieve it? Lastly, in closing. Well, there is only one way that this world will ever know peace and that is to know Christ. 
the one for whom, or the one who died for our sins. Christ on the cross was securing the peace treaty between God, the triune Lord, and sinful men. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was the emissary, the heavenly delegate sent by the triune God into earth so that he, through his shed blood, might unite sinful men in a holy God. Without that, there, was no pe- there is no peace. There are no songs. Without the Messiah, there is no hope. Look at verse 3 and 4. If sinful men continue to lie and speak and utter falsehoods, what is the result? It is arrows. It's coals. It's conflict. It's war. Do we not see enough of this around us to know, to understand? Have you heard that definition of insanity? Doing one thing, getting a bad result, and then doing it again is another and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. It's not living in the world. It's not understanding the rules that are woven into creation. We live among insane people. Utterly insane. They have lost their minds. And they have lost their minds because their lives are reaping the fruit of sowing in rampant idolatry, both as individuals and corporately as a people. And we are living among a people. I I guess you experience this. And you look at them and go, how in the world did you arrive at this conclusion after seeing all of these things? It is the evidence of chaos and war deep within their very souls. And what we have been given, jars of clay, that is what we are. We are jars of clay into which God has poured his power, his beauty, and his glory so that the world can see that even in vessels like ourselves, there can be beauty and glory and power. In fact, we as a congregation were reduced to the most fundamental evangelistic tactic in American history. And that is what? If you want to reach and have visitors, just open your doors. It's like, this is awesome. This is easy. Click, open, and people come. But the reason they're coming is because they understand that within the sanctuary of God, what they're hearing are proclamations, uh, 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 movements towards humans of the divine in peace. My encouragement to you tonight is this. When you look at the world and they're fighting, they're fighting against you, they're fighting in their hearts, they're fighting against everyone This is how I want you to think of them. In my home and at certain times, there are a number of reasons why our children may misbehave. One of those reasons isn't actually sinful, but biological. If your children struggle with low blood sugar, the answer isn't raising the temperature of the room by shouting. It's what? 
You get out the skippy, you put the spoon in, you stick it in their mouth, and you say, eat this, and then you wait 15 minutes. And lo and behold, the Hulk becomes Bruce Banner again. I am not saying that this is not a sin issue. This is just an illustration. But the world has gone mad. And as believers, oftentimes we take it too personally. And because we take it personally, we put up our fists like this. And we aren't concerned with the state of their soul, merely the protection of our castle. The way in which the church... The city of God expands is by going out into those places where the crazy people are and conveying to them the gospel of peace. And they may hit you. They may laugh at you. They may insult and curse. But is not the spirit greater than those things? Doesn't the Spirit speak louder? And the reason I said earlier we're not fighting fire with fire is because I believe, and the Scripture makes it very clear, and you ought to believe, that there is no weapon fashioned by men that can withstand the Spirit speaking. He changes the hearts of men. He transforms the hardest of human hearts. And so Christ himself has opened a way where there was no way for any and all whom he is calling to enter in. But let's remember this. Our mission isn't for the world to be impressed by us. It isn't for the world to bow down to us. It isn't for the world to say, you were right, I was wrong. Our objective is to proclaim Christ and to have men and women and children receive him as their only Lord and Savior. It is, as Paul would say in the book of Romans, to believe in their hearts and to confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and that he came and died for their sins. And so our fighting and our laboring and our worshiping, it takes a different tact. We're going for the sake of their hearts. We are not warmongers. They are. But we go armed with something that they cannot withstand. And it is the gospel of the good news of Christ Jesus that has been promised to us as it is proclaimed, the Spirit will move in the hearts of men. That means you can be calm. It means you can lower the temperature as far as you are able. It means that you can go with pity even at those who spit at you. And I have one more point of application. In order to understand this, because it may be hard to believe, and I would say that we are entering into a unique missiological, that means missions, context, especially in the West today. You hear of America being now a post-Christian nation. Whatever that means, there are unique challenges, parents, that our children will face that we did not have to face. They have, though, greater opportunity. But not if they are afraid And not if they take the bait and fight like the world fights. Read biographies of faithful saints who in the face of adversity proclaimed and preached the gospel and left to God the results. Remember what Paul says at the end of his life. He's writing to Timothy and he says it in the best way I know. How? Given the words by the Spirit. So of course it's good. 
Brothers, I am bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. In essence, what he is saying is, man can do all manner of things to me, but he cannot touch the word. Brothers and sisters, as people of the word, as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, as we want and labor and pray for that kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven, may we be those who truly proclaim peace. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this evening.